0: All right, let's go ahead and get started here. Um, others may come in the door. If they do, you could just point them to the handout there if you don't mind. Uh, hopefully you have not walked into the wrong room. I did already turn someone away. Actually, I think two people. Um, if you count Dr. Combe, yeah, he didn't end up in here. So, um, so if you're in the wrong room, this is uh, I'm John Eloisi. I teach church history here at the seminary, and our session is on abortion and the early church and Christian responses to this early problem. Uh, Sometimes people think of abortion as being very recent. Uh, In fact, when I was talking with a uh, colleague back maybe two, three weeks ago, he asked what I was going to do a workshop on. I told him, and he was like, oh, you know, I didn't really realize that was such an old problem. But we'll be talking about abortion in the past primarily, though we'll we'll talk about uh, our contemporary situation as well. Back in 2008, uh, you may recall us, some of you may have been uh, too young to have been following politics at that point, but NBC reporter Tom Brokow interviewed Speaker of the House at that point. Yes, I think she became Speaker back when during the uh, Lincoln administration. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, on again, off again. Uh, Pelosi, though, was uh, being interviewed back during the presidential campaign that pitted then-Senator Barack Obama against Senator John McCain. Brokow played an excerpt From an event where Rick Warren hosted both candidates out at Salback and asked both men about their views on abortion. This was a famous clip in which Obama said that the question of when human life begins was above his pay pay grade. Uh, Some of you will remember that well. Uh, I remember. Yeah. Um, It was made the news and all that. Uh, He later walked it back a little bit and said that was a little too flip uh, or flippant. After playing this recording of Obama's response, Burkow then asked Speaker Pelosi a similar question about when life begins. Here's how she replied. She said, I would say that as an ardent practicing Catholic, this is an issue I've studied for a long time. And what I know is over the centuries, the doctors of the church have not been able to make that definition. St. Augustine said at three months, we don't know. And so I don't think anybody can tell you when life begins, human life begins as I say, the Catholic Church for centuries has been discussing this. So again, over the history of the Church, this has been an issue of controversy. Uh, Who knew Nancy Pelosi was a part-time patristic scholar? Um, Perhaps we'll need to have her in at some point. Actually, I'm somewhat impressed that she knew Augustine had to address the issue of abortion because he did. We won't really be talking about Augustine's view primarily in here. She actually picked somebody who was a little bit less than clear on when life began, uh, largely looking back to Aristotle's definition and explanation of the beginning of life. Um, So it's rather interesting that she knew of that. I'm rather less impressed by her interpretation and her use of Augustine and her overall perspective on abortion. As I was saying, may contemporary Christians assume that debate over abortion began sometime in the 20th century, basically within our lifetime, uh, those of us who are older, or perhaps, you know, uh, in the last hundred years or so, something like that. Perhaps you're familiar with the Jane Collective um, of the 1900s, uh, an organization that tried to procure abortions for women prior to Roe v. Wade. Anyway, um, Nancy Pelosi and many other advocates of abortion or abortion rights, as they would put it, recognize that the practice of abortion is quite a bit older than that. But when they're confronted on the morality of abortion, they'll frequently claim that the church has been less than clear about the morality of abortion. And so this raises a number of questions like, so just when did people start committing abortion? I say committing, uh, performing abortions to be a little more neutral, uh, but committing abortions, um, when did that begin? Uh, how did the church respond to that? How did, what did the church think of that? And perhaps how is that relevant for us today? Um, So what did, perhaps what did the church, how did the church argue against abortion? Um, I'm kind of tipping my hand here. They opposed it, but how then did they argue against it? How did they view it? So let's begin by talking about the reality of abortion in the ancient world. The earliest known reference to induced abortion, I'm leaving aside Uh, miscarriages and things of that sort. Somebody actually came in, asked about that beforehand. I said, I'm really not addressing that topic in here. Um, Or infant salvation. Uh, Actually, there are a bunch of rabbit trails that I decide just not to pursue on this. Uh, For instance, what did the Jews believe about abortion? We're we're not really going to cover that in this workshop. Um, But the earliest known reference to induced abortion or elective abortion is found in an Egyptian papyrus that was written more than a millennium before the time of Christ. Dated about 1550 B.C., the Ebers uh, papyrus is a medical document that describes ancient remedies for a wide variety of ailments. Uh, despite the picture here, it's actually a really long document. It's 66 feet. It's a scroll that's 66 feet long. Um, it's housed at the University of Leipzig, and it contains 108 columns of text, this is Egyptian um, writing, um, not really the hieroglyphics. We picture the uh, pictures that almost look like you know little birds and things of that sort. You can see there more what the writing looks like. It is displayed um, in Leipzig in this massive glass display, um, just stretched out. Um, so anyway, it's a it's a large document that deals with a bunch of different topics. It contains advice on how to cure everything from asthma to tapeworms, and among such remedies, the document includes several different herbal recipes for causing the abortion of an unwanted child. So here we are, 1,500 years before Christ. Assyrian literature as well, dated about 1,300 BC. There's a little more debate on the exact daying of this particular document, this law code. It also mentioned abortion in a legal context. Actually, it prescribed um, a woman who committed abortion, it, it prescribed that you would impale her and leave her unburied, which within... Uh, the Assyrian culture to be unburied was, you're not going to um, go to the afterlife uh, or would not not be rewarded in the afterlife. So a rather strict punishment for abortion. However, it's not because they thought abortion itself was wrong, rather it had to do with the rights of the husband. And we'll see this as a common theme within early opposition to abortion outside of the church among pagans, opposition to abortion was frequently um, when it was performed without the father's consent or knowledge sometimes. For the most part, we're going to just leave aside um, the ancient Near East and spend more time discussing abortion in contexts that were more closely related to the early church, that is, a Greco-Roman culture. So we'll start with the Greeks. The practice of abortion was known among the Greeks, uh, appears in a number of different documents. One of the earliest references to abortion in Western literature is found in the so-called Hippocratic Oath. The original version of this oath, broadly attributed to Hippocrates about the year 400 BC, that ballpark considered the father of medicine by many mentions elective abortion in this oath. The oath taker promises to do no harm more specifically, among other things, the physician making the oath promises, I will give no deadly medicine to a one if asked or suggest such, such counsel. And in like manner, I will not give a woman a pessary to produce abortion. Um, modern versions, the Hippocratic oath isn't a static thing. It evolved over many years um, I actually just saw something, I think it was uh, connected to Yale, um, where a class wrote their own Hippocratic Oath. Um, it was crazy. It was it was just nuts about a lot of the issues being addressed in this conference um, include a bunch of that stuff, affirming the wrong side. Um, so people today, doctors going through today, typically are not going to say this kind of thing. Modern versions of the Hippocratic Oath won't address abortion. So um, it's probably not real helpful to say that um, you know, you're violating the Hippocratic oath. Doctors are violating the Hippocratic oath when they um, when they perform abortions, except for the fact that the promise to do no harm certainly was a uh, kind of a lasting uh, part of that. Um, I also don't think uh, that's best to say that the Hippocratic oath prohibits all abortion because it addresses a very specific kind of abortion, which involves basically a poisonous suppository, for lack of a better um, explanation. Um, that often was very dangerous to the woman. The oath notwithstanding, Hippocrates apparently was not opposed to the practice of abortion in general. In fact, in his book on the nature of a child, he recounted specific instructions that he gave to a pregnant young woman in order to help her abort her child. This was a, uh, a prostitute actually that he gave these instructions to and told her how to mechanically um, try to lose her child in the womb. Moreover, as Caparis points out, the Hippocratic corpus, that is the body of writings connected to Hippocrates, not all, not all of them are actually written by him, but this corpus of literature contains plentiful advice on oral drugs, pessaries, mechanical methods, even surgical procedures in order to induce an abortion. Often this advice was dressed under a thin veil of medical necessity. It was supposed to be used for therapeutic purposes only. However, it is self evident that once this knowledge was organized in writing, it could be used for abortions dictated by a wide range of circumstances. So, some 400 years before the birth of Christ, abortion was common enough that Greek physicians were talking about different ways that a person might commit an abortion or perform an abortion. In addition to medical texts, various philosophers, Greek philosophers, addressed the topic of abortion. Plato favored the practice of abortion in certain circumstances. He was actually a contemporary of Hippocrates. We don't know if they ever met, but they lived at the same time, and Plato actually mentions Hippocrates. So would Aristotle, though Aristotle lived after Hippocrates. Uh, Both men would talk about the uh, physician. In both his letters and his laws, or rather his republic as laws, Plato alludes to the practice of abortion as a means of population control in the ideal state. For example, in his republic, Plato stated, a woman, I say, at 20 years of age may begin to re- bear children to the state and continue to bear them until 40. And he gives some other stipulations about um, poverty, wealth, and uh, family relations and other things. Says so we grant all this, accompanying the permission, with, st- thank you, thank you for the permission, Plato, um, permission to have children, uh, but the permission in order to prevent any embryo which may come into being outside the stipulations from seeing the light. And, and if any force away to the birth, The parents must understand that the offspring of such a union cannot be maintained and arrange accordingly. In other words, if the child is conceived by parents who are outside this age range, the mother in particular, outside the range of 20 to 40, then the child needs to be taken care of, preferably in the womb. If that's not accomplished, then they need to arrange accordingly after after the child has been born. He should be put away. Um, This is kind of an early form of eugenics. If the child isn't desirable for whatever reason, um, they should be done away with. Moreover, in his book, Theatres, Plato described the role of midwives in eliminating unwed children by abortion. He said, by the use of potions and incantations, the midwives are able to arouse the pangs of labor and to soothe them at will. They can make those bear who have difficulty in bearing, and if they think fit, they can smother the embryo in the womb. So, as Plato sought, the bearing of children was for the good of the state, very pragmatic and uh, focused on what is good for society, particularly the government. And when circumstances suggested that the birth of a child was undesirable for the state, he didn't hesitate to recommend abortion. Seemingly without any kind of moral qualms, there's no real qualification. It's just they're, n- they're not wanted. Certainly any that were misformed in some way, um, he would say, should be exposed if that's discovered after birth. Aristotle. Plato's student, also suggested abortion in some cases. He differed from his teacher on a bunch of different issues, including when life began or more precisely when ensoulment took place. But like Plato, he allowed for elective abortion under certain circumstances. For example, Aristotle wrote, when couples have children in excess, I resemble that remark. uh, Some of you may know. Uh, We have eight children. uh, So... um, I'm pretty sure he's talking about more than eight, though. I don't consider us to be at excess. Um, Anyway, when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation. So he seems to see some kind of moral component connected to abortion and is going to prescribe abortion to only take place um, early on in the pregnancy. Elsewhere, he proposed that a male fetus develops a soul at about 40 days after conception, and a female develops a soul at about 90 days. Not sure how he actually came to that conclusion. I've, I've read it, read the context in which he says this, and I haven't figured out why he really thinks that's the case. Therefore, he suggested that abortion should take place prior to 40 days after conception, basically in the first six weeks or so. A pregnancy thought was when um, abortion should take place, ideally. So in sum, regarding the Greeks, abortion was practiced among the Greeks at least 400 years before Christ was born. As Gorman notes, if any laws against abortion did exist in classical Greece, they were probably motivated out of a concern for the safety of the woman or the right of the husband. Although Aristotle preferred that abortion only be performed early in a pregnancy, for the most part, abortion was allowed within classical Greek culture, and few people seem to have questioned the morality of abortion with regard to the child itself. Right, moving on to the Romans, the practice of abortion was also fairly common within the early Roman Republic and early Roman Empire. Within the Roman world, abortion shows up not just in legal, medical, and philosophical contexts. It also featured commonly in various artifacts of popular culture, such as poetry, as we'll see here. Page four, Ovid was a Roman poet who wrote at the turn of the millennium. Basically, he was writing when Christ was born. He mentioned abortion in a number of his poems. For example, in his book, uh, sometimes just translated as The Loves, but Omores, uh, he wrote about his mistress who had recently procured an abortion without his prior knowledge. He refers to her, Corinna. Corinna lies there exhausted in danger of her life after rashly destroying the burden of an unborn child. I should be angry. She took that great risk and hid it from me. But anger is quelled by fear. In this story, Ovid was angry that his mistress had gone and procured an abortion, got, had aborted their child without consulting him first. And his anger is primarily over the fact that she risked her life. Um, not really about the child, it's she put her life at danger because um, abortion, it's hard to say it's safer in our day, but for the mother's sake, um, much safer in our day than um, in, in this time frame. I did not include pictures, but there are all kinds of surgical instruments used for abortion. It's the kind of stuff you look at and you wouldn't sleep well at night. Um, it's just kind of gross. Um, but instruments are reused, but in the absence of um, ultrasounds and things of that sort, um, these, these things frequently went awry and ended up uh, killing the mother. As this poem suggests, Ovid was far from moral, his anger over the abortion due to the fact that his mistress endangered her own life. On the other hand, Ovid seems to have loathed the person who first invented the practice of abortion. Shortly after the stanza I just quoted, he said, Whoever first taught the destruction of a tender fetus deserved to die by her own warlike methods. No doubt you'd chance your arm in that dismal arena, arena of war, just to keep your belly free of wrinkles with your crime. If the same practice had pleased mothers of old, humanity would have been destroyed by that violation. So... Ovid's a pagan, he behaves like a pagan, thinks like a pagan for the most part, though he does recognize the violence involved in abortion. And it seems to wish that whoever created this came up with the idea of aborting children that she had met with violence herself. For several centuries, most Greek and Roman criticisms of abortion stem from either concern for the mother's health, as seen with Ovid, or the rights of the father. However, around the turn of the millennium, that is the time of Christ's birth, some poets and government officials seem to begin taking a more positive view of childbirth with a corresponding implication that abortion was not good for the state. Basically, it seems that their concern is stemming from um, the need to see population growth in the empire especially, within the Roman Empire. And so they're encouraging people to have children <laughs> and beginning to view abortion, infanticide exposure of children, et cetera, as negative because we need to raise up the next generation for the good of the state for religious purposes particularly, but for the good of society. Pliny the Elder was a Roman military commander and a friend of Emperor Vespasian. Much of what he recorded in his book, uh, Natural History, may strike modern readers as incredibly naive, kind of quaint, but it's a remarkable collection of scientific and medical ideas that were common in the first century A.D. It's actually quite interesting to read and go, this is, you know, the apostles were walking the earth and this is what people thought about how to cure a headache, how to, you know, perform all these different medical uh, treatments. So it's really quite an interesting book, even if we go, yeah, I don't think I'd try that. Whatever, that weird substance, grinding up the bones of this or that and uh, consuming it. In one section of this work, Pliny criticized the Greeks for their carelessness in discussing certain medical issues. He wrote, I myself am amazed that the Greeks have described even harmful plants. What excuse was there to point out the means of deranging the mind, of causing abortion, and of many similar crimes? I personally do not mention abortives. However, flipping through his own work, um, although he doesn't compile a list, he doesn't like catalog abortives. Like, here are the things, the five different ways you can, you know, abort your child. He doesn't do that. But he does talk about various medicines and substances that um, did have abortive properties in their day. Also in this work, he mentions that late-term abortions tended to kill mothers in his day, generally after seven months pregnancy. He thought in the last couple of months, abortion was particularly dangerous, probably having just to do with the size of the baby and um, the difficulty of either the the amount of poison the had to take, uh, the mother would have to take in order to kill the baby, could very well kill her, or via mechanical, uh, surgical means, could be very dangerous for the mother. Juvenile was a... Roman poet who wrote during the late first and early second century basically was a contemporary of the apostle John, was alive through the nineties, though would have been younger than John. He's the author of 16 satires, he had a tendency to make light of cultural problems, including abortion. For example, after knowing that poor women were much more likely to bear children than the rich, there's a statement in there about how often does the gilded bed contain a woman lying in labor, basically saying that the wealthy frequently pursue abortion. So they want to keep their slim figure and... Don't want to go through the uh, discomfort of pregnancy, etc. After that, he rather flippantly wrote, Our skilled abortionists know all the answers, so cheer up, my poor friend, and give her a dose yourself, dose of poison. Things might be worse, just suppose she chose to stay pregnant. Uh, rather flippant and uh, making light of the process of killing a child. Somewhat like Ovid, he mentioned abortion in the course of a poem, spoke about as something that was common in Greco-Roman society. People knew what he was talking about. So in sum, concerning the Romans, within the early Roman world, abortion was generally acceptable as long as the woman was not injured or killed, and the abortion took place with the husband's consent. Nor was it uncommon. Neither Roman law nor Roman culture suggested that killing a child in the womb was inherently immoral. As Gorman notes, the practice of abortion, which had reached an unprecedented height in the first century BC, remained at a high rate through that century and the next. In other words, right into the first century the culture in which the early church was planted. So as we'll see, it was addressed by the church fathers. So how did the church respond to the cultural practice of abortion during the first few centuries of church history? Start by talking about the apostolic fathers. Uh, We have some general statements in the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers are the earliest fathers of the church outside the New Testament. These are not the apostles themselves. These are people who are thought to have known the apostles. At least they overlapped with the apostles. They're kind of the second generation of church leadership after the apostles are passing as they are passing off the scene. They agreed the abortion was sinful and therefore something that should be prohibited, something Christians should certainly not engage in. The Didache, also known as the Teaching of the Twelve, almost certainly has no direct connection to any of the Twelve Apostles. The authors don't actually claim to be the Apostles, but they claim to represent the teaching of the Apostles on a wide variety of practical topics. The Didache is basically a manual of primitive Christianity. It begins with a moral treatise known as the two ways, two different ways to live. It contrasts the way of life with the way of death and lays out specific instructions about righteous living. After discussing the first commandment, the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, the Didache lays out specific instructions with regard to loving one's neighbor. They say this, The second commandment of the teaching, You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt children, you shall not be sexually immoral, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not engage in sorcery, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. So here basically abortion is prohibited in this list of rather significant sins that are involved in not loving one's neighbor as you should. These are sins against your neighbor, um, sins um, that can be committed in violation of the second commandment. Written about the same time, the Epistle of Barnabas, again, this, uh, this epistle has no connection to the Barnabas in the New Testament. It's a different Barnabas. Uh, but this is written about the same time, just after the turn of the first century into the second. It also discusses two ways of living, though under slightly different imagery. It talks about the way of light and the way of darkness. Much like the Didache, this epistle also prohibits the practice of abortion in the context of love for one's neighbor. You shall love your neighbor more than your own life. You shall not abort a child, nor again commit infanticide. You must not withhold your hand from your son or daughter, but from their youth you shall teach them the fear of God. So, here, aborting a child or committing infanticide, it was fairly common in this day, it's really beyond what we're talking about in this workshop, but it was fairly common if a child was undesirable um, to simply expose them. So, they're born, and for whatever reason, uh, particularly within Roman culture, the father could decide kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down thing, whether they would accept the child and recognize the child as their son or daughter. And it was very common to expose a child, that is just to go leave a child by the bank of a river or in some other place where they would be found. They basically meet one of three ends. Either they'd be killed by animals, just exposure to the elements, lack of nutrition. They might just die there. Um, They might be picked up by somebody who sees that child as a future investment. That is, they're going to raise them for a few years, turn them into a slave or a prostitute um, down the road. So there are a number of people who actually go after that, a number of Christian writers who go after that and talk about the fact that um, incest is taking place because children have been picked up, raised, and have been forced to become prostitutes and their father doesn't know. And uh, anyway, a number of Christian authors Um, address that. The third possible end to such an exposed child was that Christians would pick them up. Uh, Christians would take these children in and care for them and seek to raise them under the sound of the gospel, raise them within the church and such. So that's why you see uh, infanticide here and uh, abortion frequently are coupled together um, in the writings of the fathers. It's pre-common practice. Both abortion and infanticide are pre-common practices in this time period. So the church fathers, um, in this context, in the epistle of Barbas, connect or contrast, perhaps, um, abortion, infanticide with uh, teaching your child the fear of the Lord, raising them up as you should. Instead of committing abortion, instead of exposing your child or committing infanticide, you should raise your child up to fear the Lord. The church fathers prohibited abortion in large part because they saw, the, uh, they saw human life as beginning in the womb. Within Greco-Roman society, there's some disagreement about when exactly human life began. As we note above, Aristotle saw ensoulment Aristotle saw as taking place 40 days after conception for boys, 90 days for girls. But neither Greek nor Roman law ever asserted the humanity of the child prior to birth. That's never really an issue within Greek or Roman law, that the child has rights, that the child, whatever, is a human. In sharp distinction from the pagan culture around them, the early church saw human life as beginning in the womb and usually as closely connected to conception. However exactly they understood conception, I'm sure that the uh, distinctions between fertilization, implantation, and such was not um, all that clear, but they talk about conception, the beginning of life in the womb. In his treatise on the soul, Tertullian, church father, around the year 200 in Northern Africa, he wrote, "'We allow that life begins at conception, "'because we contend that the soul "'also begins from conception.' life taking its commencement at the same moment and place that the soul does. he says, even if we become injured in the womb, this is a loss suffered by what is already a human being. So one of the foundational reasons why the early church viewed abortion as wrong is because what is in the womb is already a human being. And that's in sharp distinction from the culture around them who saw that the thing in the womb was not human, didn't have rights and could be disposed of. as uh, as desired, particularly as the father desired. Similarly, Lactanius, his discussion of the soul said, the soul is not introduced into the body after birth, as it appears to some philosophers, but immediately after conception, when the divine necessity has formed the offspring in the womb. For it so lives within the bowels of the mother that is increased in growth and delights to bound with repeated beatings. I think that last part there is talking about kicking the mother, likes to kick the mother in there. Um, but he sees the soul um, uh, beginning in the, in the fetus, in the baby, immediately after conception. Again, connects it to conception and sees what is in the womb is a child, is human. The church fathers held the abortion was sinful because they saw human life as beginning in the womb. They believe the child in the womb possessed a human soul. And because of that, the early church tended to equate abortion with murder. Uh, If what is in the womb is human and you kill it, you're committing murder. Somewhat ironically, and this sometimes strikes people as weird as they begin to read church history, um, early Christians were sometimes accused of things that we just go like, what, how how in the world? Um, They were sometimes accused of things like murder Or infanticide, even cannibalism. You might go, like, cannibalism? Like, that's way out there. Um, At times, such accusations may have stemmed from ignorance about things like the nature of the Lord's Supper. People talked about uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Jesus. Pagans picked up on that and ran with it in a wrong direction. Started accusing Christians of cannibalism. Or people may have misunderstood the motivation behind Christians taking in foundlings, those children who had been exposed, whatever people taking them in. Um, There are stories by pagans trying to claim that Christians um, killed those children and partook of them in the Lord's Supper. Um, So they were eating the body parts of children. Crazy. Obviously, like grossly way out there um, wrong, but the accusations were there. At other times, the accusations were clearly just malicious propaganda intended to provide basis for persecuting Christians. Uh, may have stemmed from an ignorance at times, but other times it's pretty clear that people are lying on purpose. Regardless, early Christians were compelled to reply to these false accusations. In the late 2nd century, Athenagoras noted, three things are alleged against us, atheism, diestian feasts and Oedipian intercourse. Uh, atheism, it might sound weird to you, but that's, they denied the existence of the Greco-Roman deities. So that like, Christian's atheists. Christians aren't atheists, they're theists, uh, monotheists. Uh, well, it, they denied the existence of Zeus, uh, Zeus and Hermes and all kinds of other Greco-Roman deities. Um, and so they were deemed to be atheists. Theistian feast there is referring to cannibalism, Oedipian intercourse to um, um, orgies, basically. In response to the charge of murder and cannibalism, Athenagoras replied, when we say that those women who use drugs to bring an abortion commit murder and will give an account to God for the abortion, on what principle should we commit murder? So his reasoning is basically, Christians argue that the abortion of a child is murder when the rest of the culture doesn't. And so we, we prohibit that, we're against that. So why would you turn around? It doesn't make any sense for us to turn around and commit murder of children or adults or whatever. That just doesn't make sense. That's his reasoning because we, we claim that a woman who commits abortion using drugs is committing murder. Similarly, Tertullian of Carthage answered the charge of infanticide by pointing out, in our case, we may not even destroy the fetus in the womb, while as yet the human being drives blood from the other parts of the body for its sustenance. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing, nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. The early third century Latin apologist Felix wrote, "And now I wish to meet him who says or believes that we Christians are initiated by the slaughter and blood of an infant." He's referring to that common charge that Christians are killing infants somehow. No one can believe this except one who can dare to do it. And I see that you, at one time, expose your begotten children to wild beasts and birds; and another that you crush them. There are some women who, by drinking medical preparations, extinguish the source of the future man in their very bowels and thus commit murder before they give birth. These statements come from apologetic contexts, but they do represent what early Christians believed about the nature of abortion. They identified it as being murder. Um, And so unthinkable for a Christian. In a different kind of context, a more pastoral context, the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, preached against immorality and the abortion that frequently followed it. He said, Why so? where the ground makes its care to destroy the fruit, where there are many efforts at abortion, where there is murder before the birth? For even the harlot, you do not let continue a mere harlot, but make her a murderer also. You see how drunkenness leads to whoredom, whoredom to adultery, adultery to murder, or rather something even worse than murder. For I have no name to give it, since it does not take off the thing born, but prevents it being born. Why make the chamber of procreation a chamber for murder? So again... Uh, Christians are pretty clear in stating that killing the child in the womb is murder. Whether defending themselves from false accusations or preaching through the scriptures, when early Christians discussed the practice of abortion, they often equated it with the murder of a child. So in sum, throughout the first few centuries of church history, Christians held and taught a very countercultural view of abortion. Christians consistently argue that life began in the womb, and therefore the abortion was tantamount to murder. Perhaps we should not be surprised to find ourselves in a very similar situation today. We're, we're not the first ge- generation of Christians, not by a long stretch, to have had to deal with the cultural problem, the sin of abortion. Christians have dealt with this really through our entire history, 2,000 years. Uh, Christians have interacted in cultures that have embraced abortion as acceptable. All right, so what's the contemporary situation and and how should we respond? A few comments. Precise abortion statistics are somewhat hard to nail down. Two major sources of data on abortion in the U.S. come from the CDC and the Guttmacher Institute. Uh, The CDC, of course, has been rather busy the last few years with other issues. um, And so they actually don't have more recent numbers than the ones I will give here. The Guttmacher Institute is a very pro-abortion organization. CDC has certainly amenable to abortion. Uh, The Guttmacher Institute was actually begun by Planned Parenthood as it was part of Planned Parenthood. They spun it off about 15 years ago, but that's basically where they are. They're uh, pretty aggressively pro-abortion. But both of these institutions compile statistics on abortion uh, in America. We're really just talking about abortion in America here. If we were to open up the numbers beyond America, all of a sudden it just goes into the millions very quickly every year. Uh, Just It's uh, terrible. A few years ago, the CDC reported there were 629 some odd thousand abortions performed in the U.S. in 2019. That was up slightly from 619, uh, 619,000 and such in 2018. Those numbers are significantly lower than the actual to- total number of abortions because they don't include abortions performed, say, in California. Maryland, or New Hampshire. Those three states don't report abortions at all. And some of the other states that do don't report complete numbers. So various state, um, basically, uh, health services or health departments report numbers to the CDC, but California doesn't at all. New Hampshire and Maryland don't at all. So the numbers there are clearly low. The Guttmacher Institute compiles statistics somewhat differently, especially their close connection to Planned Parenthood. They attempt to account for abortions performed in all 50 states. Guttmacher's latest available figures are from 2020 when it says there were 930,160 abortions nationwide, up some 14,000 from the year before. Taken together, these figures suggest that somewhere between two and 3,000 children are aborted in the U.S. each day. Um, you can see there Statistically, abortion, the number of abortions taking place in America has actually come down a bit from the late 70s. In the late 70s and around 1980, the numbers were considerably higher. Um, They have come down somewhat for whatever reasons. I don't know whether that's due to ultrasound technology and uh, just awareness connected to that. The efforts of Right to Life and other um, Pro life organizations. I really don't know the explanation, but you can see there in the top graphic that the numbers have come down somewhat. The overall numbers, too, um, you can find this in various books. Um, they were well over a million a year in the U.S. Uh, back at around 1980. Here in Michigan, um, the most recent Michigan Department of Health and Human Services report reported some 30,000 induced abortions. Uh, took place in Michigan just last year, so that was about 82 abortions took place in the state of Michigan all through 2021. Our country was in the uh, the midst of uh, COVID and all that, and uh, and some 80 in addition to uh, people dying of that, some 82 children were being killed roughly um, each day in the state of Michigan via abortion. Of course, these numbers don't include things like um, so called back alley abortions or um, forms of contraceptive that actually end up inducing abortion if they're not completely, if they're not successful. Um, there are no doubt many, uh, lives that are snuffed out that are not reported in these kind of medical contexts. Christians rightly rejoice. I actually, I told my kids, I never thought we'd see the day when Roe v. Wade would be overturned. I just didn't think it would happen back. You know, if you'd asked me five years ago, 10 years ago, I said, unfortunately, I don't think so. Um, so I think we all rejoiced this summer when that was overturned um, in the Dobbs decision. Time will tell how that will impact statistics. I am actually not all as hopeful, I would like to be hopeful, but I was talking about somebody, uh, talking with somebody about this at lunchtime, that uh, here in Michigan, I mean, we've got proposal three coming up, and I mean, we could be in a worse situation here in a few months than we were last spring before Roe v. Wade was overturned. We could actually be in a worse situation. So um, I'm not terribly optimistic. As well, as a historian, in light of the antiquity of abortion, I think it will be with us until Christ returns. I don't think it's going away. And so we need to think about how to interact with the reality of abortion in our world and people who are impacted by that, people who have committed it, people who... um, have close family members, people who are in difficult situations. So how should we as Christians respond to the ongoing problem of abort- the sin of abortion in our culture? Well, I think we need to respond to the sin of abortion with clarity and conviction. We need to be clear on what we, uh, when life begins, what we understand ab- about the nature of abortion, what abortion really is, and we need to be willing to say that, like... Um, we don't need to duck and say, "Eh." I mean, these are children being killed. If there were two-year-olds being killed in the hallway, we would do something, right? We would, um, pastors, and really all Christians should be clear in our understanding of abortion, including the more subtle means of abortion that sometimes passed off as birth control in our day. Means that, for instance, in premarital counseling, pastors would do do well to mention the possibility of abortive or back of abortive properties entailed in some forms of birth control today. won't go into the details, but um, if you're counseling people, people who are looking at, you know, they're not desiring a child in the first uh, year of marriage or something, and um, their doctor may not be telling them all the facts. And now you're not a doctor, probably, and You're not prescribing things, but you should uh, probably make them aware of how various um, chemical, both hormonal and, um, and some mechanical means, uh, it can impact a fertilized egg. While refraining from turning the church into a political action committee, pastors should also occasionally in appropriate times address the topic of abortion as it relates to biblical truth. The Bible speaks to moral issues, and abortion is primarily a moral issue. It's uh, first and foremost a sin issue, not a medical issue or a political issue or something else. It's primarily a sin issue, a sin against God uh, the, and the killing of something made in His image. And so it's totally appropriate for uh, pastors to address a sin issue. Um, even though it has taken on very much a life of its own within politics and such, it is first and foremost a sin issue. As pastors address the topic of abortion, they do need to do so recognizing that there are likely women in their church who have had an abortion. I remember more than 20 years ago now in another state, I was riding with a pastor somewhere. He was showing a couple of us guys who were looking toward ministry at the time. And he was gonna show us some historical sites. And so we really spent the whole Saturday with him. He was in the midst of this sermon series on the 10 commandments, 10 week series, if I'm remembering correctly. And as he had preached through the Sixth Commandment, you shall not kill, he told us, this is a good-sized church, um, pretty similar in size to Intercity, so hundreds of people present on Sunday morning, told us as he preached, you know, he had talked about abortion quite aggressively. And he says he got to the end of the sermon, he looked out, and there were a half dozen women just really bawling in the service. And he said it occurred to him, he hadn't really realized as he prepared the sermon that there would be women present who had had abortions generally before they were saved, but that's just reality. You can see there's the statistics from the Guttmeier Institute. They mentioned that roughly one in four women, nearly one in four women, will have had an abortion um, by the time they reach 45. And so if our church is seeing unsaved women, uh, people saved in adulthood, which hopefully we are, the reality is there will be some will have experienced this and that doesn't mean that we don't address it but I think we should have that in mind we shouldn't be in the position of that pastor who got to the end of his sermon and that it was too late he was like oh what have I said you know what how have I perhaps made these women feel guiltier guilty in ways um guilty over past sins that are covered by the work of Christ um and they've repented of and and addressed and I just was ignorant um so it's good to be aware, um, it's just statistically, you're almost certain to have people in your church who have been touched by abortion. In Michigan, uh, ballot proposal three is an attempt to eliminate existing restrictions on abortion in our state and to enshrine the right to abortion in our state constitution. Uh, there's actually a state law back in 1931 that uh, criminalized abortion. Nobody really knew about that. After Roe v. Wade, it kind of became irrelevant. It kicked into effect this summer, but there was immediately an injunction placed against it by a a state judge. Um, And so now it's uh, on the ballot. I don't know. Just the last week or so, you've probably been getting things like this. Multiple things about Proposal 3. Here's one from Right to Life. So I was glad to see this one. Um, But more have been pro-abortion. Vote yes. uh, Various things about Proposal 3. I think it's totally appropriate for pastors to address that. I don't think pastors should be talking about the local millage, you know, and what, whether we fund this or that, you know, this road project. Shouldn't be talking about all kinds of political issues. But again, this is totally a moral issue. This is completely a sin issue. It is appropriate for pastors to say, this is what this is saying. You need to understand that there's, using the word individual here, that's pretty broad. Every human being is an Individual and saying they have the right to this and that. Basically saying within our state constitution by this ballot proposal that it would be legal. Um, the abortion, most restrictions on abortion would just disappear overnight. Um, so I think it's totally appropriate for a pastor to address this issue. Uh, a lot of propaganda or a lot of the information that people are getting in the mail is misleading at best. Um, and so I think it's appropriate. Scripture talks about human life, this um, uh, the image of God, the sanctity of life, murder. And uh, Proposal 3 would attempt to make murder, um, certain forms of murder, not a criminal activity. So, well, given the time and place in which we live, Christians should exercise their civic duty to vote. Here's some, a place where we live in a very different culture from the first century, uh, the apostles, the church fathers, never had the opportunity to vote against abortion. If they had, I'm quite confident in which way they would have voted. Well, we do have the privilege of voting, um, and certainly we should, we should pursue that, and uh, Christians should be encouraged to exercise their civic duty to vote within keeping, in keeping with Christian morality. And I say this in just a short sentence, but Christians should pray that God would graciously frustrate the attempts of evil people to promote and uh, to protect within our society sinful activity in our legal codes. We should be praying that organizations like Planned Parenthood would be frustrated that people who are trying to make uh, the murder of children more accessible would be frustrated in their efforts as well. Christians should respond to people impacted by abortion with compassion and practical help. As I said, just a few minutes ago, um, I know people, um, who have had abortions and, uh, Likely everyone in this room does, whether you know that you know the person or not. Um, abortion activists like to point to large numbers, the 900,000, the whatever, number of children being aborted each year, and they'll point to people like us, they'll throw this uh, statement at us, or this question, where are you going to do, adopt all those unwanted babies? Well, if abortion kills a human being, such a question largely misses the point, point. Um, You know, if it were we're going to kill 10 year olds, if you don't take them into your home, what are you going to do? Take in all the 10 year olds? Well, that's not the point. The point is it's wrong to kill the 10 year old. And that's the point here. But I say it largely misses the point for a reason, because as Christians who believe that abortion should be illegal, we should wrestle with the inevitable outcome of getting what we wish for. If we if we could flip a switch and make abortion illegal in America tomorrow and eliminate nearly all of it. That means that hundreds of thousands of babies would be born that, where the mothers would have preferred to abort them. The mother would prefer not to be raising that child. Um, and we, we just need to recognize that. As Christians, we could respond to the tension of what, what would we do with all these children by pointing out that one couple's choice doesn't necessarily obligate others to deal with the results of that choice. We could similarly try to argue that actions have consequences and that people need to take responsibility for the consequences of their actions. But when those consequences are a child, and when in many cases the couple, or frequently the single mother, is unprepared or completely unable to care for the child, things are significantly more complicated. Every day in America, single young women discover they are expecting a child that they were not looking to conceive, Often the biological father responds to the news by promptly disappearing, I Have of an advanced form of ghosting. All of a sudden he's gone and uh, not interested in, in becoming a father as he sees it. Sometimes the young woman has a great family support structure that can help her raise the child, but in many cases the expecting mother has few skills or resources to speak of. As believers, while we should firmly oppose the practice of abortion, we need to try to understand the plight of the many young women who find themselves in such situations, apart from Christ, is it any wonder that many feel that they have no alternative to abortion? So we need to think seriously about how we could help people in this situation. It's not hard for me to imagine a um, 22 year old young woman just out on her own, has an entry level job, and uh, is making poor choices, barely paying her rent, and becomes pregnant through. You know, sinful choices, Um, whether it's hanging out in bars and becoming drunk, whatever, has a boyfriend, becomes pregnant, and the father is no longer in the scene for whatever reason. What does she do? I mean, just the reality of the difficulty of that situation, when the child is born, she works an entry-level job and is just paying the bills, she can't bring the kid to work. Like, so we need to recognize that there are people who are in very difficult situations. That totally does not justify murder. But we need to recognize the tension and seek to alleviate some of the tension. Now, we're not responsible for the sin that brought this all all about, but as part of being pro-life, we should be pro-child and should seek to help people in difficult situations. Um, I'm being vague about that, not saying churches need to do X, Y, Z exactly this, but the principle um, needs to be applied in some way further as Christians we should remind believers who have committed such sins in the past that Christ bore the guilt of all kinds of sin including abortion we need to graciously help those who are guilty of abortion by pointing them to the hope of forgiveness in Christ Christ does forgive abortion completely totally it's done away with for the believer um the consequence remains you can't bring back the child um and no doubt guilt at times feelings of guilt um probably resurface but uh, we should we should give hope to believers um, they certainly are forgiven conclusion humans have been performing abortion for at least 3,500 years the practice of abortion is actually quite common in the Greco-Roman Society in which the Christian Church began the early church fathers consistently point out that abortion was sinful because it was the murder of a human life begun in the womb today we find ourselves in a culture where abortion is commonplace Christians must continue to graciously stand for the preservation of innocent human life while seeking to help those who are in difficult circumstances and those who feel the guilt of sins committed in the past. I've included a bibliography here. Um, I mentioned there are all kinds of rabbit trails that one could go off on. Um, There are a number of sources that are very helpful. Gorman on page 11. If you were to want to look at one book about abortion in the past uh, from a Christian perspective, Michael Gorman's book is very helpful. It's still available through Amazon. And uh, plenty of other sources here. Riddle um, is helpful from a historical perspective on page 12. Riddle has a couple of books about the history of contraception and abortion uh, through through history. Actually, uh, who's it? Merton? No. Marvin, uh, I misspelled his name there, Marvin Olasky has a book coming out here in January on the history of abortion in America from the 1650s right up through last, well, really through this year. Um, It's not out yet, so I haven't seen it, but based on past work that he's done, uh, that will probably be a very helpful book.